from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Welcome to Money Memories, the show that's making money conversations less taboo, one memory at a time. I'm your host, Ilona. This week's guest is South Carolina-based artist Chase Allen. After leaving his 9-to-5, he decided to live his artist's dream and settle down on a remote island. Early on in his artist's career, he won an award from Martha Stewart. However, he quickly realized he still hadn't made it. Chase talks about making it on your own as an artist and the money lessons that have allowed him to do so. Great. Well, good afternoon, Chase. Welcome to Money Memories. I'm so excited to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you doing this. Well, I can't wait to get started. I think you have such a really cool background. So as we dive in, do you mind sharing with the listeners a little bit more about how and where you grew up? Sure. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, you know, maybe not terribly unique, but I did grow up in in like a, a a split house and, and, and my parents got separated when I was about five years old. And so I was essentially raised by you know, a single mother with my sister. And uh, yeah, so that's a little bit of the background and, and it ties in. I'm sure we'll get into that. It ties into how money became money to me. That's awesome. So with that segue, can you share what your earliest or most impactful money memory was? Yeah. So I went, I was very fortunate. I was, I went to school at a time where busing was legal. And I say that because I was fortunate because you learned so much about different cultures when, you know, you're in a public school with, with different ethnicities and and it was fantastic, but you know, it was the public schools I went to, there were always wealthy kids and there were really, really poor kids. And I was kind of like closer to that, that, that poor, but not, not the poorest for sure. But I think my first money memory when I was like probably six, maybe kindergarten or first grade was, you know, I guess we qualified for a discounted lunch. And I remember that going, you know, it was a little bit embarrassing for some reason. I, I don't remember much from those times, but like, I do remember that being in a special line for kids that qualified for like a reduced lunch price. And then the other kids had these like beautiful lunches that were prepared for them and all that stuff. And you're like, huh. But, it was, you know, anyways, one of those things probably is a spark that kind of makes you go, mm, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to perpetuate that if I can help it. Yeah. I think that's, so that's a first moment. Yeah. First memory. I think that's super interesting. Cause you said you were what, six years old. Probably, I think probably five or six, yeah, somewhere in there, six or seven when that when when that happened. So even at that early age, right, you could already tell just something you're like, I'm in two different lines. I'm in this line. I think this is the line that's like more, you know, like scarcity or there's something less about this line without Absolutely. having anyone tell you that, right? So Yeah, right. Yeah. So so the money matters, like the title of your show, like, yeah, you, you kind of picked up on that early. And and so can you talk a little bit more about how that, you know, evolved as you went through school? Was that something that like you continued to observe either in school or throughout, you know, your, your early life? 
Yeah, you know, I, I again, I don't really remember like much time after. Again, I was a little embarrassed by it, and so I and like lunch back then. Really, I say back then. I'm only 45, but it was a long time ago. You know, that's yeah, like almost 40 years, so 35, 40 years. But um, yeah, I started like subsidizing my lunch, so I wouldn't have to get up for eat lunch. You know, I've already kind of like. I hope I'm not off the question that you asked me, but yeah, I started to you know you know, take chore money or birthday money or something like that and throw in that extra 50 cents so you didn't have to get into the reduced line. And so how was money like treated or discussed while you were growing up? You mentioned growing up in a, in a single family household with, with a sister, you know, what were the discussions like or if you had them at all? Yeah, you know, I don't remember if they were like, I don't think that they were ever discussed in like detail, but my mom you know, she did some, number one, you observe someone working like odd jobs, like painting houses or cleaning windows, or, you know, she's a, pro, a production assistant on a commercial. I mean, just really random things. And, but when you, I think when you witness that, and then you, I think that my mom probably communicated to us, you know, know a lot, you know, and she didn't have any qualms about it. She actually grew up in a wealthier life, which is kind of ironic that she, was raising us in a more, you know, humble beginning. But I, yeah, I don't think that she, yeah, she didn't have any interest in the material world. And so she didn't really educate us on, on money, but we knew that there was not much to be had. So you just don't, you just make do with what you do. You know? Yeah. And I think that's super fascinating because, so as we'll, we'll discuss throughout the show, now you make your career as a creative and an art not necessarily what I think of when I think of someone who's like, yeah, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a lot of financial stability and I'm going to go out and be an artist. Right. So can you talk Absolutely. a lot, a little bit about that evolution for you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, again, like I can't stress, yeah, that picking the, that my background, which was, you know, I decided after I went through college and graduated from university and was a business major you know, I had, I decided that I really, my last semester in college, they said, you know, you have these electives, you need to get rid of these electives before you graduate. And, um, I ended up in a pottery class. I don't even think I had that much interest in it. I think I was like, Oh, I'll make my grandmother a piece of pottery or something like that. And, you know, I'm about to graduate. I had a job lined up, all that stuff. I was going through the motions of college and life. Like you're supposed to do when you're in business school. And, uh, and yeah, you know, the second I started making things with my hands, and, and my mom is extremely her side of the family is like off the charts creative. And the second I did that, it was it was like you know, it's an understatement to call it a light bulb moment. It's like so much. I, I took to it really fast, and I really had a passion for it. It was my last semester in college, and it was like the first time that I was awake, and and I'm sitting there going, "Holy cow! How can I figure out?" how to do this for a living. You know, how can I do this? I didn't figure it out immediately. It took me a couple of years, but that was the impetus. Probably that was where it started. Like, Oh my gosh, this is fun. How does a, how do people sell what they're making with their hands? You know, and I had grown up as a kid, you know, I always had little small businesses and things like that. So I was a born entrepreneur, but had that creative gene. So. What were some of the small businesses that you were doing as a kid? You know, I bought a, you know, I saved up, you know, I, I delivered newspapers, I saved up and bought a, my own lawnmower when I could barely crank it at 11 years old, you know, like, you know, and, and you know, 
that and I ran concession stands and, you know, I babysat. I mean, anything, anything to make money, like, you know, I would do it. Gotcha. And so after, so you said it took you some time to get back into that creative field. So what was kind of like your first job out of college? What did that look like? Yeah. First job out of college. Again, I gave you a little bit about my background. So we weren't raised with a lot of money. We didn't have the country club grow up experience. Not that there's anything wrong with that at all, but that was very foreign to me. But my first job was in a marketing department, selling development land at a very like private community. And it was like, (laughs) It was not again, not that there's any, I don't want to be critical of that, but it was very foreign. I had zero interest in it. And I actually was, a, you know, I was working with people that were very like business and money driven and very materialistic driven. And I felt like an outsider alone, like completely didn't fit in. And so, yeah, that, that fire was burning the whole time I was working there, which was about two years. And then is that, is that after two years, is that when you decide to transition full-time into art or how did that journey look like for you? Mm, Yeah, it was, it was a culmination of things. So gosh, I'm trying to think of exactly how it started. It was, you know, it was, it was 9-11. There was 9-11. My mother got super like deathly ill. I had a friend of mine, two friends actually, and I'm, I'm 22, 23, 24 in this business world. I'm, I'm pretty miserable because I'm a fish out of water. You know, I'm, I'm doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. And, and two or three friends passed away, like, you know, whatever. One was hit by a car. One was, you know, whatever. Terrible stories, really sad. But, and my mom was super sick and then 9-11 happened. It was like all these crazy things came into play that made me think, oh my God, like, it was the first time I went from invincible to tomorrow's not guaranteed. And, and this retirement idea is insane. Like waiting to do something that you love is crazy. At least it is to me. And so at that time, when I was like 23, 24, when I'd go on like a road trip, I would always like hunt down a potter or, a, you know, or whatever. And, and I live on Defusky Island or I have for 20 years. And there were these there was one artisan out there in this rural part of the island and they were potters. And I of course went directly to them, like a magnet, like a moth to a flame and really, I mean, still have a good relationship with the wife. The husband just passed away this year, but I have a great relationship with them. And I met them and thought, and they had just opened up their pottery studio and they were in this funky place where no, really not much tourism had started yet. And, and it was so appealing to me because it was like kind of the opposite of what I was doing for a living. So I started like every time I'd travel somewhere, I would hunt down an artisan and talk to them and, and, and just pick their brains about how they did what they did. And uh, anyways, I hope I don't ramble, but when I decided I wanted to open up, I was like, well, I'll, I'll be an artisan on the Fuscan, but I can't make pottery because they are the only artisans and they're potters. And that would be so rude to like go there. So I thought I had that confidence from that pottery class in college still. So I was like, well, if I can do that, I can do anything with my hands. And so I was in Asheville, North Carolina, and I saw this guy with these funky metal pieces. And I went up to him and I said, how do you make these pieces? He goes, oh, I'll weld them together. And I went like, I, 
I absolutely am going to learn how to weld and I'm going to learn how to do this. I just knew right then and there, like, that's what I'm going to do for a living. I was so fascinated by these artisans and these artists. I just like, I just had a such connection to them. They didn't know that, but I did. And so I had to do it. I had to do it. That's amazing. And for some of our listeners who haven't been able to see some of your art in person, how would you kind of like describe some of your pieces, the scale, the size, the, the, the like the textures and things? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as I said, I got into metalworking because pottery was not an option on Defusky because I had chosen the place that I wanted to make this crazy life, you know, turn this, this 180 degree turn away from what I was doing. I had all these life lessons about, you know, life is too short. And, um, and yeah, so I went and, you know, became this metal artist. I found this place to rent and I stuck a sign yard. I didn't go through any proper procedures of fire or anything, but I, you know, I went and bought all these welding, this welding equipment with a credit card of all things. And I, we can talk, I want to talk more about that in a second, but yeah. And, and I was just making, you know, sorry, let me back up. I, I actually would sneak away at lunch when I was in that real estate marketing world. And I would sneak away to their, when I learned about welding, what welding was, I went to the mechanic shop at this, that really nice posh development. They had a mechanic shop for everybody's golf cart. And I would I asked the mechanic to show me how to weld. And he had a bunch of garbage, like trash metal and things like cart parts and things like that. So I started welding them together. He was nice enough. I don't even remember the guy's name, but he was nice enough to let me do that on my lunch breaks. And I would weld these things together into like garden art, like a pig or, you know, whatever, real abstract things and give them away as gifts. And people loved them. And, um, anyways, what was the question? Was was it how I morphed into the metal work? Oh, so now, yeah. So, so that's how the metal started. And then when I took the plunge to turn into a business, I really didn't have any massive direction, which was a problem. And that had to be overcome, but I'd make anything. But now, after about two or three years, I started specializing in things that people could, uh, you know, there was nobody making anything out of metal that would be a wall decoration. And, and I, for some reason, recognized that as an opportunity. Also lived on a remote place where I figured I'd have to ship things out eventually. So I needed to make them shippable. And so now I'm a blacksmith kind of metal artist and I use sheet metal and I turn them into a kind of coastal decor pieces like fish, mermaids, crabs, and I hammer them out, heat them up, weld them together, paint them, and hopefully ship them out and sell them. So you mentioned that you you started out in Defusky Island. And for people who, so I had the privilege of, of going to Def, this really magical place called Defusky Island for the first time last summer, but it's a really, really interesting and unique place. So can you talk a little bit more about and it's not just like when we say an island, like, I don't know. How, I, can you describe a little bit more about like the Fusky, how unique it is and what compelled you to go to this location in particular? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy to do that because, you know, I was 23, 24, like I said, you know, on that fast track to success, whatever that meant. And that definition was pretty skewed when I was at that age. But um, yeah, the Fusky was like the opposite of everything that was around me. A quarter of it is that private development where I worked, but the other part of it was mostly this. It, number one, there's no bridge. It's situated between Hilton Head and Savannah, and it's just its development's never taken off there because it's very difficult to get people and 
and materials over there. So Tafuski is just this weird, beautiful, like sand roads, beautiful live oaks with the Spanish moss places really just, it just inspired me. I loved, I loved everything about it from a natural standpoint. And the fact that it had, it was kind of like uncharted territories. Like no one had really been there. And I like to do things that people had never done. And so it just, it was attracted to me for that reason. And yeah, Defusky is a special place. It's, it's, it's an acquired taste. It's a very back to the basics thing. There's not a lot of shopping. There's certainly not a lot of beach activities like, well, there's, there's no grocery stores. So there's certainly no putt putts and things like that. So it's real back to the basics, hang out with your family, puzzles, beach, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's a really incredible place. And I highly encourage anyone who's listening to the show who hasn't been there to definitely go check it out, especially if they're in the Hilton Head and Savannah area. But going back to a little bit some more about how you started, you know, from the financial side, you mentioned using a lot of credit cards. So can you talk a little bit more about how setting up, you know, the small business, especially in a creative field was like for you? Yeah, sure. I did not have the wherewithal to get a small business loan. I it, I, I did go to a small business loan office and they, you know, the paperwork they gave me was like, it's not good for my personality. That creative side is just, it's just too overwhelming. But I think when I was like 14 or 15, my aunt said, get a credit card, but pay, only use it to buy something that you can pay off immediately. So yeah. And that's what I did. And so I started building my credit when I was like young, like I think 16 or something like that was the first time I got like a $300 credit card and I bought something for 300 and paid it off immediately because I had the cash. Just like she told me, she said, never, you know, make payments on that. So I did that and through college. Now that was also the time like in the late nineties, that's when, you know, they started like really laxing the financial world a little bit, but they would send me all these advertisements for 0% interest. And so I had no money when I started this art gallery on this remote island with hardly any tourism on it. So I, but I did have this 0% interest for a year credit card offer and it was an $8,000 limit. And I sourced all my welders and plasma cutters and tables and tent. I, I started under a tent of all things, but I sourced all my tools that I needed and it came out to about seven or $8,000. So I maxed it out. And, and, but I gave myself a goal, you know, I was like, if you don't pay this off in a year, you know, you got to go back to the real world. You know, were you able to pay it off in the year? I was absolutely able to pay it off in the year. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, I kept side jobs the first year and a half I was doing this, starting this, this ridiculous idea on an Island, you know, I waited tables. I tutored a couple kids on the island, you know, but yeah, I, I paid it off fast. Wow, and they that's, paid a cent of interest. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That's 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 great discipline. I was gonna I was gonna assume this was the biggest financial obstacle you had, but it didn't sound like it. So, what is the f- biggest financial obstacle you faced, either as an entrepreneur or on the personal finance side? You know, I mean, really, I don't. I mean, biggest financial obstacle. I don't know if I've even had. I think that might be my biggest financial obstacle, but just because it was risky, but I was 24. I didn't have a family, you know, it's so easy to, you know, not to take credit away from my 24 year old self, but you know, when you're 24, you really can take risks and you should take risks, calculated risks. 
but I don't, I mean, I think that that was, I mean, you know, I, I say that I've made some, some really great risky investments in like real estate and stuff like that. And, and it, those are obstacles, I guess, to try to get loans and things like that. But I think starting that business was probably, and paying it off, before, you know, before I paid any interest was some relative obstacle. Yeah, absolutely. And looking back on, you know, now you've, now that you've been successfully running, you know, Iron Fish for a while now, what's been the thing that's most surprised you about being, I guess, a creative small business owner? Mm. Well, I mean, I talk to the public a lot because they come by my gallery. And, and one thing that you and I talked about before us going live was like, because I have made a living and, and a decent living for a long time now, 20 years, doing something that I have a passion for and something I like to do and something that's very, what well, never been done before exactly how I'm doing it. It seems to inspire people to just open up. And, and that's something I didn't have a clue was going to come by. Although I was inspired by artisans, I'm not so sure why that's a surprise, but that's been a great like byproduct of doing what you want to do, getting to hear because people just share with you, you know, oh, you know, I know how to do this. I know how to do that, but I've never I've never had the guts to try it and blah, blah, blah. I've always done this job that I hated. And you kind of become this like listening pad. <laughs> for for people that's a surprise and then also 20 years into doing this and i still get surprised when people make large investments in my artwork i find that i mean i don't you think i get used to it but i, I don't it's super cool <laughs> i'm I sure that's a, it's a great byproduct so for other people for listeners or individuals out there who maybe have that creative itch or have like some kind of side hobby that they've always wanted to, you know, try to take more seriously, but I've been scared to do kind of what would your advice be to, to them? Well, it might not be great advice. Um, because when, when I decided to become this artisan, I didn't like tiptoe into it. Like I dove in, submerged all in hundred percent. You know, I had, you know, I, I you know, I'll never forget it, you know, because I had a couple friends say, you know, laugh at you and be like, you're going to go make metal work on an island. Just, you know, they, they kind of like, you get hissed at and you get, you know, chastised a little bit. And, and now a lot of those people are some of my biggest fans, but, um, but the thing is, is I did 1000% go in and do it, you know, where I don't, I don't know how you tiptoe into it. I mean, some people do, and they have these great success stories, but you know, maybe they're just like super talents or something like that. But I had to really like work at it constantly and find my niche and, you know, figure out which direction I was going to go and stay focused. You know, that's a very difficult thing for creative people. And so I, I'm challenged with that on a day-to-day basis. But I, I learned that one thing I learned from four years in business school was, and, and by the way, anyone can get this lesson from, anyone and you know i can sum up my college career right now but it was a marketing class and this guy just mentioned a statistic that just just punched me in the stomach he said most small businesses fail within two years because they have an inability to focus um and and they try to do too many things so when i started making artwork i went i can't just make all these things i want to make because i want to make everything I have a million ideas, but I decided I have to have something that's presentable to people and, ha- and 
and create a niche that I could be known for. And so that's how the iron fish became the iron fish because I have a passion for aquatic life. I do like making those things. It's not the only thing I like to make, but if I want to make a living, I need to be master of one thing. And, and so I have to fight that, that guy on the shoulder that says, well, go make woodwork or go be a potter again. You know, I have to fight that every day. I think that's, that's terrific advice. And speaking of advice, kind of shifting gears on the money side of things, what, would you, what do you say is some of the best financial advice that you've ever received? Stay out of debt. You know, I mean, there's, you know, appreciating assets and depreciating assets. Avoid the depreciating assets. Like, and a car is a perfect example of that. And a lot of people just don't know that language. And, and, and it's unfortunate because I think people get stuck into buying what they want. But it's a very unwise decision financially when you're trying to make it to buy things that depreciate over time, typically. Yeah, if you're going to use debt, use it for an appreciating asset like real estate. And I, you know, I guess that's my, I, that and keep your overhead low at first. Yeah, I mean, you used a tent, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that is, that is, that is keep your overhead low 101. Like that is textbook, keep it low. I worked out in my backyard. And when people, my gallery, which is now a whole like venue, like where we met or where you came to visit, that was once just my front porch. For 12 years, people came up onto my front porch where I lived and they shopped on my front porch. That's, that, you know, but I didn't have to pay for a lease anywhere. And, you know, and I wasn't planning on making money. It just, you know, happened by staying in the game for a long time and keeping it ready, though. I think that's great advice for uh, so. any entrepreneur. And so for people who are interested in checking out your art, where can they go physically and virtually to do so? Physically, there are a lot of tour companies out of Hilton Head, Bluffton, Hilton Head, South Carolina, Bluffton, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia, that there's private water taxis and ferries and tour companies that will bring you over to my gallery. And they do bring people over to my gallery every day on Defusky Island. And if you don't want to go explore this funky island where I sit on with my gallery and studio, then you can go online at ironfishart.com. And before I let you go, my last question for you is, in your opinion, what is the secret to financial wellness? Something that surprises me all the time is, is I live in a place where there's not that many people live there, but the ones that live there in this gated community, they're very wealthy, or so you think they live a very extravagant life. But I have in 20 years watched so many people be in that world and then drop out of that world. Because you look at them, you go, oh my gosh, they, they're, they're the perfect, you know, they're successful, quote unquote. They've got it made. They've done it. Turns out they didn't own their home. The bank did, and they didn't pay their, their notes. They did go out to eat a lot. They were at the club a lot. They were doing these things, but they didn't manage their debt properly. And don't let that, don't let it fool you. People that may have this appearance of super successful might have more debt and stress than, than you have any idea about. It's um, been an interesting observation. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's a great reminder, right? It's like, yeah. 
just you never know what people's circumstances are just observing from the outside. So the people driving the flashy cars might not might have empty cupboards, <laughs> and yeah. the person bringing yeah. lunch for every day might have yeah. know, like very full cupboards. So you never You're know. So, yeah, it's it's so true. It really is. It really is. It's unbelievable. I'm, I'm like a tortoise and a hare kind of thing. Like slowly build it, slowly, <laughs> just the the slow marathon pace is is, is better for me. I love that. Well, I can't think of a better note to end our recording on. Chase, thank you so much for sharing your time and your money memories with us today. It has been so much fun. Thank you so much for taking an interest in in having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Alona. Did you know that the best way to support a podcast is free? You can show your appreciation for money memories by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. For more episodes, go to www.moneymemoriespodcast.com or download and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic.